Good day, everyone, and welcome to the Tree Church Online Bible Study. We are glad that you are joining us and that you have a heart to grow in your relationship with God through His Word. My name is Brandon Leinecker, and I am a pastor and the director of discipleship here at the Tree. We have now moved out of our study of the book of Mark and have begun to move our way through the book of Colossians. And we're so excited that you're engaging us throughout this process. And today I'm going to continue in our look at Colossians. And specifically, I will be looking at Colossians 3, 1 through 11. There have already probably been a good deal of groundwork that has been laid up to this point in some of the previous Bible studies, and that means that I'm not going to spend a ton of time developing context or going into great depth to try and give you a a good deal of context and understanding. However, I would like to reestablish just some general understandings that will be relevant for our specific passages today. And here are just a few of the things that will be helpful to kind of support our passages for today. Keep in mind that the Colossians church that the Apostle Paul is writing to was primarily made up of Gentiles, non-Jew believers. It is unclear who exactly founded the church in Colossae, but based off what we read in Colossians 1 verse 7, it could be assumed that Epaphras is the one who has started this church or has helped Paul in that mission of establishing the church. And due to Colossae being located on a major trade route in that day, it has a lot of cultural influences. And this really was a great location to kind of spread the message of the gospel because there are so many people in and out of this location. And what could happen as a result of this being such a major trade route is that it could get easily messy because of all the cultural blending that was occurring in this area. Even those in the church who had become followers of Christ at some point in time were very vulnerable to deception and being tempted to embrace kind of a hodgepodge of perspectives rather than the ways of God that they had been taught through these Christian missionaries, including Paul. And so Paul decides that he's going to write to them just to kind of refocus them and establish them once again in the truths of Christ. And when I reflect on these understandings, I just, I cannot help but reflect on our own culture in America, as well as even in Lancaster, Ohio. Some of these circumstances seem very much like what we face here, and consequently, The Apostle Paul's message throughout Colossians is key for us to hear not only as Christians, but also as ones who live in a culture with so many different influences around us. So when looking at our passages today, let's try and keep all of those perspectives in mind as we're processing through some of the points that Paul is going to be conveying. Let me take some time now and read through those passages. Once again, it's Colossians 3. 1 through 11. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator." Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So let's start to process through these verses, starting with verse 1. Based off of how Paul starts this passage, or the starts off here in chapter 3, Keep in mind also that Paul is writing the letter. There weren't chapters in the division that we have in our Bible here today. But what we know is that he's continuing a thought from something he had shared earlier in his letter. Paul says, actually, if then. And the specific phrase that he uses is, if then you have been raised with Christ. Noting something he said in Colossians 2, mainly verses 12 through 13. So if you want to go back and explore those once again to reference that for today, you can do that. So it's Colossians 2, 12 through 13. And he's not saying that their current state is one where they are physically resurrected with Christ right here and now. Although that is a promise after life for these believers, but rather he is saying to them that they have been spiritually resurrected, essentially restored back to life with Christ or through Christ again. And this tells us that this group of individuals, although they were Gentiles and although this ministry has been opened up to them, he's talking to them that they have placed their faith in Christ and they have been baptized into him. They are, as we talk about in church when we have baptized, that they are baptisms when they are dying to their old way of living and they're choosing to follow Christ in their lives when they've been water baptized. And they not only are striving to die to their old selves and live a new life for him, but Christ has also given them new life by removing the death that their past sins brought to their relationship with their heavenly father. As we have established here at the tree many, many times, and as Paul is already starting to establish through many of his letters, and even this one specifically, we reference that sin equals death. That's spiritually and physically. And then Christ has come to give us, give us new life in each of these areas. Paul is essentially saying now that, all of, that all, since all of this has taken place, they now have the opportunity to live differently. This new life that is offered to them in Christ is truly the best way, and he's calling them to pursue it once again if they've fallen away from it. And he'll go on to explain this a bit further, kind of uh, practically how that plays out in the verses to come. This opening line, I believe, truly sets the tone for the remainder of what Paul says in today's passages. He is going to continue to hover around this idea of, for the Colossians, this idea that newness comes in Christ— and that what they must do is put their old self past them. They must put it in their past and live the life that Christ is calling them to live. Let's jump forward into verses 2 through 4. 
And in these verses, Paul gets real practical, specifically in verse 2, about how to start the process of living for Christ, if they haven't already or if they've fallen away from it. So what does he tell them to do? He says, set your minds on essentially the way that Christ has told them to live, not on all these other culture influences that they may be drawn to embrace. No, he's saying, set your minds on the way of Christ. More so, he wants them to be aware that the earth offers them only death and brokenness. And he references that they have experienced this before in their past life, and that they've started to embrace this idea that Christ is given them new life, and yet they're kind of in limbo constantly. And so he's just going to continue to remind them over and over again about the importance of seeking after the ways of Christ. I want to kind of share a personal example to kind of give us an idea, a mental picture of what Paul is referencing here in these passages. My wife and I have been um, car owners for a long time, but we've recently purchased a car within the last couple of years that we've had a lot of issues with in 2021. And we have a car that has had several things broken on, on it. And if you have, and I'm sure you have ever been an owner of a car, you can know from your experience that when something is broken on that car, it really is hard not to focus on that brokenness, especially, especially if it is noticeably broken. However, once it's repaired, we have a tendency not to focus on it as much. For example, if you have a flat tire, like the noise alone is enough to make your focus and attention turn to that constantly until it's repaired. If you have a knocking in your engine or if you have a headlight out, it's like immediately you're drawn to that. But the, once it's restored, once it's repaired, you don't really focus on it anymore. And in a similar way, Paul is trying to get them to understand that Christ wants to show them a new way to restoration. They no longer need to focus on the brokenness of their lives or do the things that lead to the brokenness of their lives. And if they put a ton of mental energy into focusing on the broken, they only keep themselves in that state. And so he's offering that to them now as well as into eternity. In verse 4 specifically, he's saying that the, this is promise is not only a spiritual resurrection, but also a physical one as well. The promise of eternity for those who have placed their faith in Christ. And as we move into verses 5 through 8, he then shows them some additional ways that they have been fueling the brokenness in their lives, and then what they can do to change that. He proceeds to lift off some of the main contributors to the, the, to the brokenness in their lives, and he says things like sexual immorality. And he, he's not, he doesn't give any specifics of what that looks like, but for them it probably was pretty clear because he, they had already, had already been heard what that looks like in their lives. And so he's just sharing that once again. It's sexual morality, impurity, passion. And we're not talking about like a good passion. We're talking about passion for things that are not of God. Evil desires, desiring what is not from God. Covetousness, either wanting what others have or desiring for more than what they have already been given. And essentially he says that that is idolatry, desiring more of something else other than God. And then he tells them in verse 6 that these things are ungodly. They do not lead to a life that draws them closer to Christ. And then he goes into this very profound statement, something that we're going to spend some time hovering around, just kind of sorting through. But he tells them that God's wrath will come against anyone who's practicing these behaviors 
without any pursuit to move towards Christ or repentance in their relationship. And, and I think this is a good time to kind of push pause and process out this point because there's a ton of confusion oftentimes that surrounds this idea of God's wrath. And I want to take some time just to kind of work through it together. So here are some of the common misunderstandings about the wrath of God that I hear or even in my own life have kind of personally experienced. Many feel and even view the wrath of God as God having this like uncontrollable anger and rage against their sin. And I think it's important to know that they see it as like this uncontrollable thing that God has no power over it in his life. Or it's like God has this like senseless fury or an unjust vengeance towards their brokenness or towards their behaviors, their disobedience. And that somehow God has forgotten the promise that he made through Christ, uh, Christ's finished work on the cross. But I think that's an incorrect view of the wrath of God, one that is very kind of off in terms of what truly the wrath of God means for us in our lives and for anyone who, who God has called. However, the, the truths of God, they, I want to share with you with you share some new truths with you to kind of help you resolve kind of some of those tensions that you may be experiencing. We know that God is a jealous God, meaning that he loves us and he wants to be in relationship with us. And anything that distorts that relationship or comes between him and us, he wants to to get rid of. He's destroyed that already with the work of, of Christ on the cross, and he's made every way to be in relationship with us. And we can't lose sight that it is our sins, it's our rebellion, our unrighteousness, our unholiness against God, we are the ones that are making that choice of walking in disobedience. For whatever reason, sometimes, though, we tend to diminish the extreme state or condition that our sins put us in. Somehow we lighten it as if it's just this simple thing that we do, but it's actually very relational. And even as we read today, sin is death in our lives. Sin is our choice to rebel against God, to not trust in him. And it's actually so God, it's so bad that, that God would be fully just in all of our lives to respond with like just complete destruction and getting rid of us completely. He is just in every way to respond that way because he is holy in every way. However, God gave us a way uh, to walk with him in righteousness, to walk with him in right standing uh, once again. And it's through, once again, the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And this removes not only the spiritual effects of our sin, but also it removes the eternal consequence of our sin as well. And God has extended this invitation to everyone in the world. We read that probably in our look at Mark, the gospel of Mark, when we were working through that, that Jesus's full mission was to come and reestablish that relationship with God once again and and remember and remind everybody that he's come to save the world. And to anyone who calls on the name of Jesus, he came to save the world and, and save them from this devastating condition that our sin puts us in. Then again, we have to keep in mind, and as he makes reference to here, that everyone who refuses to call on the name of Jesus and receive what God has offered does not have the same hope that we have uh, for eternity. God will righteously judge all, and they will receive what their sins truly deserve, or they'll be seen through the work of Christ on the cross. And we tend to see this not as an act of of love from God, as if he's not responding in love. 
However, we want we want God, you know, it's good for us to have a just God. It's good for us to have a God who who works in the right and who is constantly doing things that are just because it keeps us living the best life that is God, that God has designed for us. Our situations would be very different if God acted continually in an unjust way, but in fact, he does not. So as we look back again, back at verses 6 through 8, we we see what Paul is referring to when he's saying to the Colossian church that they once walked in opposition to God's ways, but now they have placed their faith in Jesus and have moved from eternal death to eternal life. Living their lives every day, living with God in their lives, they must now pursue a life that moves them closer to sanctification. The sanctification essentially is the process of becoming more like God and further away from the brokenness of their lives. And he just keeps reminding them of all those things that keep the brokenness present in their lives. And he'll continue to do this through verses 9 and 10. To conclude, I just kind of want to spend the remainder of our time focusing on verse 11 and its meaning and purpose, because it really is an amazing encouragement, not only to the Colossian church at that time, but also for us. And so we'll look at some personal application sides as well. In verse 11, Paul says here, he starts the verse out off in that way, meaning that he was referring to something said in verse 10. He says in verse 10 that the Colossians engaged, if they, it says, as the Colossians engage in the process of sanctification, they are being restored back to the image that God always wanted for his people. And he mentions this in such a powerful way, the image of the creator. He wants them to be back in right standing once again, that they can now reflect him and relate to him and be connected to him in every single way. And in order to do that, we need to have a God-like mind, a God-like heart, a God-like way to our lives so that we can experience him and understand him. And once again, the Colossians Church, uh, we have to be reminded that it was a diverse group and they had been invited and different in so many ways, including their ethnicity and the religious practices and much more. However, he says to them that they have been given a new identity when they chose to follow Christ. They now belong to his family, and they bear his identity in all that they do and say. All was new for them. God was offering that to them, a new life, a new future, a new hope, a new place among him and among his family and among his body. And there is no greater gift and promise that someone could receive than the gift that God is offering through the work that he is doing and in being in a relationship with God. And I want to finish off to kind of just focusing on that for our own lives. How does that apply to us? So here is our takeaway from these verses today. When we have placed our faith in Jesus, we, are, we too are offered a new identity in God. You have been called to live a new life and to pursue sanctification, to become more like God in every single way. And if you find yourself making choices or living in a sinful way that keeps you in your brokenness, you are offered today, right now, a new opportunity this day to repent, to change your mind and heart and walk in the new life and walk in the image that God has for you. This call to set our minds and actions on living for Christ uh, can seem right and good and paper, maybe even simple and straightforward on paper. But it really is something that requires much focus 
and purpose and also receiving of the grace that God has extended to us. And to, to truly live it out, we need the grace of God in our lives. And you have been given that. You've been given everything that you need in God to accomplish these things, to live in that new life that he has given us. And I think this is such a powerful point for us to finish on and reflect on for today. I'm going to pray, and then I will close us out. God, we thank you for this promise. We thank you for these reminders. I know that this is specifically written to the Colossians church, but man, is it so powerful and it's so relevant to what we're dealing with in our own lives. We know that by walking in our sinful state at times that we are leaving ourselves in a state of brokenness and you have called us from that. You have called us to be able to bear your image in all things. And we know that we need your purification. We need your forgiveness of sins. We need your courage and boldness and strength to walk in this new way that you've offered us. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that that is a continual thing in our lives that we can come back to. And we give you our lives. We surrender ourselves to you, wanting to walk in the new life that you offer. We love you and praise you. It's your mighty name we pray these things. Amen. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. We hope that these Bible studies continue to be a blessing to you as you long to engage with God and to learn more about his word. We hope you have a great rest of your day.